0: Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a busy day ahead of me in my life. I have an off day. Yay. And actually have some bee work to do. The survivor hives that I have out in the yard, they have hit the point where they are about to explode out of their boxes. (laughs) They're growing. They're doing what overwintered, good overwintered hives do. And so I've got to go out there do some inspections and make sure they're not thinking about starting to swarm and all that type thing and also make sure they're set up i won't be spreading the brood nest out or anything because we've still got a patch of cold weather coming not cold but chilly at night and i just don't like to stress the brood in any way or stress the nurse bees by spreading them out too thin So what I'll be doing is probably keeping the brood nest intact and adding a little space above their heads. And by space, I mean drawn comb. I have lots of good drawn comb, even though, as I've mentioned before, I'm going through and weeding out any drawn comb that is darker than a caramel color. I am starting to weed out because I've got a lot to work with. I just read more and more about how old comb, the black comb that, oh my gosh, sometimes if you go to somebody's bee yard and they haven't recycled their comb, you'll get frames that are just black. And in beekeeping, that is not a good color. It harbors any diseases that the bees have been exposed to. It harbors any pesticides in your environment that the bees have accidentally brought home. It's just not a good thing. So as you get more years under your belt, start cycling out your black comb. And like I said, anything darker than a dark caramel for me, I'm cycling out what I am doing is I am melting it down in the wallpaper steamer wax melter setup. It is, I mean, I know people say, oh, there's hardly any wax in brood comb, and it's true. Compared to honeycomb, there's hardly any, because most of what you see in a black comb is literally built-up cocoons. That's what makes it so black, but also, I don't know what they do with the wax. I don't know where the wax goes, but you get some wax out of a brood comb. And I've been surprised, and so I I confess I used to throw this stuff away uh, some people are just like smacking themselves in the head right now when they hear that people who use wax now that I've got the wallpaper steamer to w- melt it down there's no harm in doing it the other benefit of doing it is that because the steam is hot like burn you hot it will essentially over time if you leave it in there long enough it will basically sterilize the frames and the boxes they're in I think 212 degrees is what the wallpaper steamer thing says. I like that you know because it cleans kind of cleans things up and it cleans up those cracks and crevices that I can't scrape out. I have friends I know that use a little propane torch and they uh, scorch their woodenware When they're cleaning it and again this is not for new brand new people but this is after you've been in it several years been in it since 2010 so i've got some old stuff the only downside to the wallpaper steamer melter is that if you stack several boxes up and i put the steam coming in from the top anyway the the frames underneath get dripped on by all that really dark Uh, wax and stuff and even though i believe it's going to be clean because i steam it long enough it's not attractive and it's hard to scrape off because a lot of that is melted propolis and it kind of stains the frames so that's kind of unfortunate but i do scrape it might set those out in the sun to not look quite so uh, so tea stained as you know if you see uh, what looks like mm, what looks like melted chocolate kind of splashed inside a hive or they call it uh, tobacco spit stains or on the front of the hive you have probably read that's a really bad sign that's a sign of nosema or dysentery or the runs <laughs> in your bees and you definitely don't want to see it and so that's why i don't like that color on my frames even though i know consciously that is a propolis stain it still mentally upsets me so i am try to get my frames that's the only downside i found to to the melter oh and the other downside if you have plastic foundation is it will warp it it just comes out useless and work though there's there's workarounds anyway i'll talk about the wallpaper steamer more later today i am the topic i'm trying to get to with you is inspections i've had a lot of questions come in uh, including from one of my most faithful listeners michael details about spring inspections and so what i want to do is i want to give you a few tips that i've learned since 2020 And then I'm going to post in this podcast a section of audio that was a bonus podcast last year. It was last May. It was right at Mother's Day, right when we had that Mother's Day freeze here, which I was very unhappy about. I had posted it for the patrons on inspections. Just a very casual talk through of some of the things I look for when I'm inspecting. And so now I'm going to tell you a few tips and then I will share that audio from last year and so patrons this may be a repeat to you new listeners this is a sample of the kind of goodies you get over at patreon but it's fine if if you don't feel like you can join patreon there is no pressure that is what this the main channel here is always going to be the the free podcast so about inspections as with everything in beekeeping it all depends on where you are in the country, or what country, uh, what your warmth, what your spring is, what your temperatures are, whether you've got cold snaps coming, all those things affect what you find, what you will do about what you might find in your early spring inspections. Up here in the mountains, if you're in the mountains of western North Carolina, or in any type of a similar, more northern Appalachian mountain type setting, and the Ozarks too, when I lived in the Ozarks, this applied, you have to watch out For, you know, like we've had this fabulous, fabulous, warm week. The bees are going crazy. They're so happy. But we've still got frost coming. Unfortunately, I see them coming on the weather app. I kind of have that in my mind. There are things that I would do when it's definitely warm, it's going to stay warm, that I might spread the bees out more. Because once it's truly settled spring and, you know, moving into early summer, wherever you are, then... The bees are in expansion mode, they are growing, hopefully you have a flow going on in the nectar, and all those things are the recipe for building a hive big enough and healthy enough to swarm. Now, for a beekeeper, that might be a not-so-good thing. In the natural world, that is a great thing. The bees are healthy and strong, and they're about to propagate themselves. They're about to split and make another colony or a few. So let me just talk about some basic tips on inspections. I'll come back to this more in future podcasts. And you're also welcome to send any specific questions you have. If you're a patron, i look carefully at the Patreon comments and try to get those into the podcast lineup. And then also you can write me at blueridge714 at gmail.com and ask a question and I will do my best to work it into upcoming podcasts. Let me pause here. (laughs) This is not a sponsorship announcement. This is just something that I want to tell you. If you happen to be listening from the Charlotte area, if you are looking for nucleus colonies, my friend Brian Fisher has nucleus colonies. If you want his contact information, again, email me, blueridge714 at gmail.com, and I will send that to you. Again, he is in, I believe, Concord, which is outside of Charlotte early in the season he sells nucleus colonies from a, a friend of his and then later in the season he sells his own nucleus colonies and i've seen brian's bees and they are good looking bees so i would not mind at all having some of his bees and then also a new nucleus producer, backyard producer, who I am so proud of. Jeff, I am so impressed. I read your note on Patreon. I am so impressed. Jeff has gone from an experienced beginner to just expanding his yard like crazy. He successfully overwintered these gorgeous nucleus colonies in uh, 5 over 5 double deeps. And now he has a ton of bees. And he is selling a few nucleus colonies to his club if you happen to be in the Winston-Salem or Greensboro, North Carolina area, he is in that area. I would be glad to give you his email if you happen to be in one of those areas and looking for a good nucleus colony. So anyway, congratulations, Jeff. I'm really impressed with what you've done. All right. So like I said, that wasn't a sponsorship. I just come across that information and I know it's, it's hard to find a good nuke. And one tip I will give you. Now, nucleus producers won't exactly like it that you're asking this. (laughs) Whatever area you're in, it's kind of good sometimes to not get the first batch of nucleuses that, that come out if the queen was mated that spring. And that's because in the early spring, sometimes you have a less successful, less diverse mating because there just aren't as many drones out there. So, for example, your nucleus producer may have beautiful, healthy hives, But if the queens go out in the world and there's not enough beautiful, healthy hives at the same level to produce a ton of drones, less successful and less diverse mating. Now, that could still get you a good nuke, but if you want a great nuke, you might talk to your producer about when the queen is mated now if it's an overwinter queen you know and she was a late summer queen from last year then she's going to just rock from the beginning but if she's a spring mated queen then you want to find out, in my opinion, I'm not just doing this to annoy your new producer, but you want to find out when was that queen mated? Where was she mated? Was, is she a purchased queen that they just put in some bees of theirs? Or do they actually know when and where she was mated? And if they're their own queen, then they, they know a lot more specifics about that. I think, again, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a bee snob. I can't help it. If your nuke producer is producing their own queens and putting them in the nucleus colonies, I like that better because what that means is she didn't come as a caged queen. She wasn't, uh, banked anywhere for any length of time. I've read more and more about, you know, queen banking really does. They take a hit to their quality. They take a hit to how well the bees they're introduced to are going to adapt It's not to say a caged queen is bad. I mean, all of us, if you're going to buy a special queen, she's probably going to come caged. But if you buy a nucleus and she's already laying, and if you buy a nucleus and that queen was raised by that nucleus producer and she was basically moved right from her mating nuke into the nucleus that they're going to sell, then she did not get banked. And that is where they just kind of put her in storage in a a hive in a cage and she can't lay. So anyway, those are, you know, snobby... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Things that might annoy your new producer, but they'll also know you are looking for something quality. Okay, sorry, got off on that. But in, in inspections, so so this time of year, what you are assessing is you are assessing everything that's in the in the whole hive. You are assessing the brood pattern. You you want a lot of brood. You want brood in all stages, ideally. If you want to see new open brood ideally if you can you want to see larvae or as tiny larvae as you can see ideally if you can see an egg then you're in high cotton because you if you see a standing up straight egg you've got a queen within less than three days so you don't even have to look for her you're good your queen check is essentially done if you see brood in all stages and that means they're building in the audio i'm going to attached to the end of this. I talk about backfilling the brood nest when they start putting nectar inside inside the oval or the circle of the brood nest, that's a signal that they're that they're starting to backfill the brood nest. I talk about that in a later audio. One of the things that I learned since I did that audio last year is the idea of when to put on supers. I have a, I have a new thing and this was from the Irish beekeeper that um I, I posted some information on the Irish beekeeper Of 50 or 40 40 or 50 years I learned so much from that presentation and I shared it in a in a podcast I don't think it was I think it was at the end of last year maybe but he talked about how how he looked at supering he said if he looked at the hive and he thought oh my gosh this hive is like they are they're packed and they're right on the edge of swarming but I don't see any queen cells then he would under super and by that I mean putting the super the empty frame of drawn comb or drawn comb alternated with foundation. Those are the two best things. And if all else fails, then a box of uh, foundation. It's so good if you can alternate it, at least with drawn comb. Anyway, if he saw the box was packed, he would put that empty super of drawn comb right on top of the brood nest and then any other supers that you know maybe the bees were starting to put nectar into then he would put that on top of them and so essentially like if you just super a hive you're setting an empty box of some kind drawn comb foundation whatever on top that's super is on top but if you under super then you are putting it on top of the brood nest but under maybe additional supers that they've just started working on The bees are very sensitive to whatever is going on right above the brood desk. That's where they check things out to see how they're doing on filling up the hive. And so if you put an empty box over there, then they're like, oh my gosh, we don't have nearly enough in the pantry. Let's fill that up. Let's cancel those swarm plans. Let's work on the super. Regular supering. Okay, so let me go back. The Irish beekeeper, what he said was, if the hive is packed, he will under super because he wants to immediately give them the feeling of, oh gosh, we got to work on this super. But on the other hand, if he looked at the hive and he was like, well, yeah, they're going to need a super soon, then he would just put it on top, the very top of the stack, you know, so that the bees would start moving up and perceive some space but not get that strong signal. And the other thing about you don't want to put an empty box right over the brood nest, and by that I mean with frames and foundation or drawn comb. You don't want to put that uh, empty comb right over the brood nest if you've got a cold snap coming, because remember, heat rises off that brood nest. You don't want them to lose the heat in that brood nest if you still have to worry about cold snaps coming. But if your cold snaps have passed, then you've got more leeway to open up some space. Okay, I think those were, that was the tip I wanted to add in. Oh, one thing, when I posted this um, on Patreon last year, somebody at that time had said, what do you do when you find queen cups or cells during an inspection? Now, finding a queen cup and finding a queen cell, two very different things. A queen cup is like the little cap of an acorn, and they have those in there regularly, you know, and if it's an open queen cup, you look in there, there's nothing going on, it's dry at the bottom. Well, there, that's no problem. You don't have to do anything, because they, they keep those in there, they're just like, yeah, maybe we'll need this sooner or later. A queen cell, on the other hand, is, uh, what the, in the UK, they call charged. That is when there is an egg or a larva and royal jelly. And out in the field, what you'll see is a glisten, you know, a little pool of royal jelly and a glisten in the bottom. If you see that in the bottom of a queen cup, it is not a queen cup anymore. It is a queen cell. And that is in action. That means they have started the swarm process. And that is a topic for a whole different thing of how to deal with a queen cell. There, I've got many podcasts. On making splits and all that uh, and if you have swarm cells started you have the opportunity you have a wonderful opportunity to make a split on the other hand if you find a capped queen cell so it's the peanut hanging off usually hanging off toward the bottom of the frame if you find a capped queen cell it that cell is finished and there is a good likelihood that your queen has already left with her swarm and again that's a whole different um, whole different menu (laughs) on the flow chart. You go to a whole different page of, of what to do at that point. But here's just some basic information about inspections. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. And I appreciate each one of you listening. Here's the audio inspection. Probably the most important thing for newer beekeepers is before you inspect, really get it in your mind why you're inspecting. If you don't know why you're inspecting, that is the first thing is to definitely figure out this is my goal. A lot of times in the spring it is swarm prevention or um, I'll call it nectar management because once the flow comes on once the whatever is the big flowering thing in your area that the bees make honey from once that starts then ideally even if you're not planning on harvesting a ton of honey to keep your bees in the box and to keep them uh, able to work and put up honey if we if we do some things in the hive it can really make a difference on how much honey they're able to put up and whether that is for us or for them either way I think this can be helpful Sometimes in the spring, you're going in with the intention to make a split. Maybe not because you're worried about them swarming, or maybe you are, but for whatever reason, you've decided you want increase in your yard and you want to make a split. And so, whatever the goal of of you going into the hive, when you're newer, sometimes I used to, before I would go in, (laughs) because I'm a nerd this way, I would just like look over um, a book or a blog post of some kind about the thing I was about to attempt to do, to just try to cue me. And what I found handy about that was sometimes I'd read a thing, it wouldn't catch my attention, but then I'd be out there looking around the hive and see it and go, oh, oh wow, that's what this was talking about. (laughs) And if I could remember, I would uh, take whatever action it suggested. If I couldn't remember, I would put it back together and go back and read that article more carefully. So sometimes that can help. Prepare your eye to see things. If you've read a description of it or watched a video where they describe it or show it um, or listen to a podcast where it's talked about, then when you see that in the hive, sometimes it can get you to what you need to know a little faster. So this time of year, just like in a a kind of everyday hive out in my yard, like I said, we're a little bit behind right now, but we should be just on the cusp of our good flow. Here in the mountains, it is primarily... Our, some of our first good flows. The the maples, of course, are done. They're, they're much earlier. But about now, hopefully, we'll start seeing locust and tulip poplar. Those are some big, wonderful flows in our area if we get lucky. Locust is a very light, clear nectar and honey. It's one of our personal favorites here at home. And then tulip poplar is my personal favorite. Uh, it is a dark nectar and which is lovely because it comes from those light lime green and orange flowers way up in the tree but it makes a very dark honey. So one of the things when I go in this time of year I'm trying to look and see are there com- is their comb suddenly full of nectar because that lets me know not only am I seeing flowers on the trees which you, over time you will come to look for but they are able to bring it in. The flying weather is going to allow them to bring it in and their population is of enough that they can bring in a nice amount of nectar. So I might go out there to my yard. I got my smoker going. Depending on what that hive is set on, I might kind of get mentally prepared for where I'm going to set things. I like to have two spots to set things. <laughs> now this is, it might be a little bit much, but I often find for whatever reason when I get in there that I want to set things in different spots. So usually the first main place I'm going to set things is when I take the outer cover, off. I'm going to flip it upside down and put it somewhere. I like to put it on the stand. I like to make my stands with enough room that there's enough room to set boxes because that way I don't have to lift heavy boxes all the way from the ground. And just that foot, foot and a half can really make a difference in your lifting. So usually what I do is I take that outer cover, flip it over, lay it on the stand beside the hive. And then like I said, I like to have another spot and in my yard there's either the end of another stand or usually something to have a a second spot if for for whatever reason I have a box that I need to set aside. An example of this might be if I discover that let's say they're working nectar on a flow, and I discover I go in there, and in the supers, the top box is full of, you know, it's just got a lot of drawn comb, a lot of empty space, they're not using it. Then the next box down is packed with nectar. Then one thing I might do is to flip those boxes. So once I get the brood nest back together in the hive, I might set that box of drawn comb as my first super, and then take the box of drawn comb and nectar that's almost full and put it on the very top. What that does is, again, it triggers them. Anything right above the brood nest, that's where they kind of read how the storage is going, how how full the pantry is. So when that starts getting full, they might start cutting back, and they might start putting that nectar in the brood nest, which is something they do before they want to swarm. So to head that off, keeping space right above the brood nest is a very important thing. So when I go in on the inspection, one of the things this time of year I am looking at in the supers is how much space they have. If for whatever reason, if they're putting it all on a few frames in the super and then the rest of the super is just empty or or worse, they've filled up the drawn comb and then they're not touching the foundation, I might do some alternating of comb, just gentle rearranging to again, spread that nectar out. And sometimes if there's a frame of foundation in between two frames of drawn comb that have nectar in them for whatever bee reason, then they will jump on that foundation and start drawing comb on it faster than if that foundation is just way off to the side. Some of you may feel comfortable with that level of rearrangement. You don't have to, but if you if you are going for honey, then you definitely want to learn that type of thing in the nectar boxes or the supers. When you do that type of alternating, it's called checkerboarding. If you do some type of alternating down in the brood box, technically speaking, that's not checkerboarding. Checkerboarding is <laughs> as people will correct you and tell you, so be ready for this it is a nectar management technique. In the brood box, that's not what you're doing. But you know what I mean. If I say checkerboarding, I just mean alternating. So, But I want you to know that so you won't say it and then somebody correct you. <laughs> I mean, not that that's the end of the world, but that'll make you feel better if you get corrected one less time in, uh, in big keeping. So this time of year, I'm going in, I'm checking their space, their nectar. Uh, let I set those supers aside. Then I always check in the brood box. This time of year, in my cases, it's just whichever boxes they are using for the brood nest. And if you have different size boxes, then you know where your brood nest is supposed to be. I am looking in there. First of all, always any inspection I like to see evidence that I have a laying queen. I do not look for the queen unless there's something I want to do with her. I just look for eggs and open larvae. When you're a beginner, the easiest way to find eggs and to train your eye to see them is to find open brood, find the smallest open white brood you can find. And once you get down to the smallest, if you look around it, the you'll probably be able to see eggs, If especially if you have darker comb and especially if you have good reading glasses and good light. The tip there is usually to hold the frame up with the sun behind you so that it's shining down into the cells. Now, as you probably know, the cells on a frame, they're not drawn perfectly sideways. Um, They're actually drawn with a very slight tilt up, which makes sense because that way the nectar, even when it's not condensed down in, not condensed is not the right word, what's that? (laughs) Dehydrated down to honey. Even before that, with the cells at that slight angle, I think it's like, I don't know, 15 degrees or something upward, it just keeps the nectar in so it doesn't run out. But what that means is when you're looking into those cells, you're not going to be looking straight in if you tilt it toward you a little bit then the sun, you can get the angle of the sun right into the bottom of the cells. And that's the best way to see what is going on in there. Now, if you happen to be using foundationless frames, and as many of you know, I'm using more of that these days, when they first draw that comb out on a foundationless frame, it's only attached at the top. And if you tilt that frame, it will swing. It will swing and it will, if it's heavy, it will break and fall off and that's awful. So with a foundationless frame, you always want to keep that, uh, if it's a sheet of paper, if you can think of the the comb as a sheet of paper, then you always want to keep the edge of the paper, the edge that would give you a paper cut. It always needs to be the gravity, uh, it needs to be pointed straight down at the ground. Now, though, there's a whole technique, and if you have foundationless, by all means, look up that technique on YouTube of flipping a foundationless frame. If you have foundation, you can just gently flip the thing over and look at the other side. And of course, I used foundation for years and years and then started uh, working more with foundation less. And it really takes some retraining to train yourself not to just flip a frame over. Of course, if you flip it and that full of nectar falls out (laughs) on your boots, you won't do that again. Ask me how I know. But anyway, so there is a different technique of flipping the frame if you're using foundationless. And when you're using foundationless, once they get it attached to all four sides, then there's no real difference. I mean, unless it's just loaded with honey and the weather's hot, you will train yourself if you're using foundationless to do that very particular movement that keeps the, I don't know the technical definition, but it, you know, it keeps the center of gravity always flat. Anyway, look up the video. You'll, you'll see what, it's very hard to explain in words, at least with my brain. So I've gone in, I've established that I have a laying queen because I see very young, white open brood or better yet eggs. If you see eggs, obviously she's been there within three days. If you see eggs standing straight up, then she's been there in under three days because that egg, the first day it is laid in this cell, it is just straight up and down. And then as it gets closer to a, a, a closing, I think, then it, it sort of falls over sideways. Then it's laying, once it once the you have the little tiny larva, then it's laying flat in there in a, a tiny C shape that gets bigger and bigger and easier to see as they grow. But anyway, if you see an egg standing straight up your queen has probably been there today. And if you see any type of egg, she's been there within three days. And that's enough. Seeing eggs, it's fine. You know, I try not to mess with the brood nest too much. That said, new beekeepers, at least in my experience, they tend to be <laughs> most new beekeepers tend to err on the side of not inspecting enough. They're like, "Oh, I don't want to bother the bees." And part of that's true, but part of it also is nervousness to handle everything. And then the other extreme of new beekeepers that I've seen, I've very rarely, but I've seen one or two that just wanted to get in there and mess around and rearrange and all that. And that's not good for the bees either. So somewhere that nice middle path of inspecting often enough, which is usually about uh, the longest in swarm season that you really want to stretch it is 10 days. And that's, that's pushing it. I mean, every week in the height of swarm season, which you want to find out in your area, what it is then, you know, weekly week to 10 days, that's your range. And as I've said before in other podcasts, if you have a young queen, like if you have a brand new young queen in there, as long as you know she's got room and as long as you've gone in there and you're spreading out things, then you can push it closer to 10 days. Now, here's some things I am looking for. And this is something once you're an experienced beekeeper, you're almost not even aware that you're looking for all this. When you're new, you have to mentally... I mean, if you want to, you know, mentally put this on your checklist to look at, but then as you get more experienced, you're just automatically taking it all in. It really will get easier. It really will get much more instinctive. For example, when I first open, take the outer cover off of the hive. Now I've probably given a little gentle puff of smoke in the vicinity and depending on the temperament of your bees, I have my smoker ready. That's the important part. But when I take that outer cover off, Immediately, I'm looking on the inner cover. If it's packed with bees on the outside of the inner cover, then that lets me know there's a lot of bees in that box. I might want to think about expanding their room. Then when I gently take off that inner cover, I usually, I look on it for the queen and then I tend to set it down in front of the hive, leaned up against the front entrance, but not blocking it because then you'll get a big cloud of the forager bees wanting to come back in and they can't because they're blocked. I just tilt it up and that way the nurse bees that are on that can just walk back into the hive. And I, like I said, I have glanced on the inside of that for the queen. In all these years, I've only found the queen on the inside of the inner cover once, but I was glad I saw her and made sure that she got back into the hive. And again, I don't, typically use queen excluders. Sometimes I do, but I don't often use them. And so that's why it is possible in my hives that she's walking around all the way up at the top. So I've set the inner cover down. I'd, I've talked earlier about kind of looking at the nectar storage area, your supers, whatever's functioning as a super on there. One thing when you open, when you pry the boxes apart and pick it up, that's an instant reading on how full that box is. You will quickly learn to judge the weight to pick up a super and just without even looking inside it go, oh gosh, they need an another super or pick it up and go oh man they're not they're not getting much nectar right now so all that will come over time when you're new you probably have to look in there and kind of begin um, what would you call that Be- begin correlating the weight of your particular super with how much nectar's in there Get that muscle memory of um, paying attention to that again if it's crammed up spread it out if it's getting full then you can you have a couple of options you can add another box okay here's a little technique. When you add another box, ideally of drawn comb that you have in storage, but if you're new, you probably have foundation. So if you have a box of drawn comb, like I might, then in the height of the nectar flow, I do a thing called undersupering. And That means putting the super under the one they're already working on. And that's what I mentioned. It creates this big bunch of open space, but it's drawn comb. So they can immediately just start dumping nectar in there. That will really, if you are going for honey, drawn comb, well, drawn comb is just always the treasure. It is always a limiting factor in your hive. So treasure it, take care of it, preserve it, but then weed it out when it gets ugly. But anyway, under supering is putting a, a full box of either all drawn comb or Perhaps I alternate the comb. So so a couple of the options for supering would be the under supering, or I could alternate or checkerboard the frames that they've started filling nectar into with a frame of drawn comb or a frame of foundation, then the other frame. So what that means is, like, if you have a box, a super, and it's all, it's getting pretty full, if you have a super of drawn comb, you can just slide it under there, call it good, that's easy and fast. If you don't, if you, let's say you only have foundation, then in my experience, this is where it gets very handy to checkerboard and alternate that foundation. They will draw it out much quicker if it's between frames of drawn comb, even in the nectar area. Now this is where the queen excluder gets a bad reputation because unless there's a nice big population and unless they're on a flow, bees are just, they do not draw comb as fast up in that honey super area. And as I've talked about many times, this is something I love about using all the same box size because I can actually put foundation down in the brood comb area, get it drawn out, and then strategically move it up into the honey supers and have a lot more drawn comb. But if you're not using a queen excluder, it also makes it easy. I'll talk more about queen excluders in a future thing. So, check the nectar storage area. I've made my assessment, made my decisions on how much space they might need. Again, I like to keep a nice solid population in my boxes. If you have if you have enough bees in the box to have a significant number of bees on pretty much every frame in that hive, there's just this whole bunch of woes you won't even run into because there's enough bees to fend off wax moths. There's enough bees to control hive beetles or hopefully. <laughs> high beetles are challenging down south. So anyway, that population is definitely works in your favor. And then there's always balancing it with them feeling too crowded. But down in the brood nest, oh, well, let me back up. So one of the things when I first look into the very top of the hive if I see them drawing white wax sometimes they'll even draw it out of the opening of the inner cover that lets me know they're on a strong flow and they need more room it's particularly in the nectar area and perhaps in the brood nest area but when they're drawing wax that's a very special time it's a very narrow window of the year where both the flow and the warmth are at the right the magical combination and the age of the bees so you have to have three factors going in your favor to get wax this is one reason why it's such a treasure. So you have to have the right weather. There's a, a level of warmth that they have to have to draw wax. And then above that, they don't, they don't draw it very well either. Then you have to have a certain number of bees of a certain age, your young nurse bees. And then you have to have either feeding or a flow. And on a flow, they just, a natural flow, they just act different. They just, they're having a blast and it shows. So anyway, white wax drawn in places other than foundation triggers me to say they need more nectar storage room. So now that when I'm down in the brood box, I'm looking for things like early in the spring, I start looking for drone comb. And those are the the big fat cells that are sideways. And you often tear them in two when you separate boxes. Because with foundation, we don't give them a lot of room for drones. They want drones. So they'll draw them in between the boxes. And then you tear them apart when you open up. Well, that is a bummer for those particular drones, but it's handy for the beekeeper because when you once you've torn them apart and you see those white larvae laying there, look at them and see if they have mites on them. They're very easy to see on the big, fat, white larva. You can take your hive tool and poke around a little bit, you know, turn the larva over. You can even smoke the bees back to look at them real good. If you tear drone brood apart and see mites, then you need to get to it on whatever you're doing to manage your mites, because that's your early, well, hopefully your early warning signal to jump on that. That's a quick place to look while you're inspecting. A lot of new beekeepers get freaked out when they tear those cells up because they think they're queen cells. But if they are, if the cells are sideways, if they're the, the same angle as as the comb, then they're, they're drone cells. If they're hanging do- down like a peanut hanging down, that is a queen cell. That's a whole different thing. In the brood nest, one thing I'm looking for is queen cups and queen cells. So a cup, I think in the UK they call them play cups, which I think is great because some bees are just more prone to put a bunch of cups. They're like, oh, we're just having them just in case we need them. They're right there. They're ready. And then other bees don't do that so often. Cups are no problem. Sometimes, mostly. <laughs> I, I tilt the frame, look in that cup, put the sun on it, look in it. Once it has an egg and larvae in it, then that is a charged queen cup. That is a cell. That's a queen cell, even though it might be brand new. And that means you're much further along in this swarm. And they, they're, they're not just thinking about potentially swarming in the future. They are making the first steps. If you find that charged queen cell when it's very small, There's many things you can do that you don't have that option anymore once it gets really big, like once it starts to really look like a peanut. Or if you open and you see capped queen cells, then you wanna really pause. You never knock those down if it's capped because when they're capped, there's a good chance that hive has already swarmed or they are so within minutes to hours to days of swarming that you don't want to do it because they're going to do it anyway, even if you knock queen cells down. But that's a whole other thing. So anyway, those are some of the things that I look at when I'm inspecting. Oh, another important one is if I look in the brood nest, and you know, the brood nest is that that round ball in space. And so usually in those round spaces on the frames, you see larva. And then usually you'll see some pollen around them. Sometimes they scatter out pollen here and there. And then usually you'll see nectar somewhere on the outside of that. If you look at that brood nest frame and start to see little glistening cells of nectar where there should be brood in that middle. So you see there there's brood, 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 <laughs> you know, all in that pattern that should be. And then they're starting to put nectar cells. So they're starting to dot that frame with nectar cell inside kind of the baby nursery. That is your signal. That is backfilling the brood nest. That's an important sign. When they start backfilling the brood nest or putting nectar where ordinarily there would be larvae, what they're doing, one of the things they're doing, is they are limiting the area that the queen can lay. And that is a definite swarm preparation because remember, they have to slim her down to get her ready to fly. And one of the ways they do that is they limit her her laying by backfilling the brood nest. So when you start seeing those glistening drops, inside your brood area, that means they're thinking about it. And you need to really look in that hive and see what stage they've gotten to. Okay, so off the top of my head, those are things that I look for when I inspect. Some of the hints for inspection for newer beekeepers are just plan where you're going to set the boxes before you start taking things apart. Always set the boxes on other boxes, cattywonk, you know, not like it's setting on the hive, but set it at a tilt so that your wood to wood contact is very small areas. So just imagine if you set a box. On another box just like it is on the hive then all the woods in contact with all the wood but if you just tilt that top box you know a quarter to the right then all of a sudden you just have four spots the size of your thumb that are wood on wood the important part of that is it's less space to crush bees and so you can when you're stacking the boxes aside just tilt them a little bit and you instantly lessen the square footage that's gonna crush bees and that is much easier then newer beekeepers when you're putting that hive back together and of course you have to put the full wood on wood this is where the smoker does as much work as any other time and that is to if they've gotten out on the if you've got a nicely populated hive they've really gotten out on those outer edges and use your smoker to just gently run them back in And gently run them off the top bars. And again, you'll just crush far fewer bees. If you can get through a hive inspection crushing as few bees as you humanly can, those bees are gonna be so much nicer. The moment you crush a bee, of course, it releases alarm pheromone, everybody starts getting upset. That is, if you hear that terrible crunch, then take your smoker and you don't even have to smoke the bees. Just smoke the area in the hive. So there's just this light smoke in that whole area, and you will be amazed at how much that will calm them down. The smoke is much better to get them off of any, any anytime you want to get bees off, it's much better to use smoke than a brush, except if you're dealing with queen cells. <laughs> uh, it's a long story. But anyway, brush, you'll, if you use the brush, you'll quickly see they hate the brush and they don't like that and it will upset them. Whereas gentle, light puffs of smoke, it does not seem to upset them. It just moves them. Okay, so that's everything I can think of at the moment thank you to each one of you who have really gone above and beyond and you are contributing to this podcast. You are keeping it going. You are the team that makes it possible. I thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you soon.